Hey everyone, it's Zach. I'm just popping in here at the front to let you know the sound quality on this one, especially on my end, is somewhat lacking. I was having some kind of recording difficulty that didn't become apparent till after the recording, and I've done my best to touch it up. I think it's still very listenable, but yeah, it's a little, it's a little rougher than I'd like. This actually encouraged me to go out and buy kind of a new setup, a new microphone, an audio interface, and upgrade my equipment. So. From here on out, hopefully we'll be all smooth sailing. And actually, your generous donations on Patreon really are what made that possible. So, thank you, and enjoy the episode. The year is 1965. I'm Dave. I'm Zach. And this is My Marvelous Year. expert, and alongside Zach, the comic book newbie, we'll cover all the essential Marvel stories from its origin to today. This episode will be covering the second half of 1965. If you missed out last week's 1965 Part 1 episode, we covered another 10 essential stories. Today we'll be starting off with Journey into Mystery Annual. Again, you can find all the reading lists on MyMarvelousYear.com via the Patreon channel where you can support My Marvelous Year or the Comic Book Herald reading club so you can read along at home. Quick note before we do get into the issue, I just want to say thanks to everyone for your early support of My Marvelous Year, and if you get a chance and you like the show, please rate and review on iTunes or your podcast player of choice. That will help us quite a bit as we get started. We've been getting a ton of great reviews, like some really nice, really nice reviews from people, and they're all really appreciated. We read every one of them, so yeah, thanks a lot. Awesome. So without further ado, Let's get into 1965 Part 2, Journey into Mystery Annual Number 1. Now, again, as a reminder, Journey into Mystery is the Thor title at this point in time. And this annual, unlike uh, the annuals we've done in the past, is actually a pretty brief story. So as like Amazing Spider-Man Annual or Fantastic Four Annual were really like 70 pages of new content and new story. Mm -hmm. Um for for each of those titles journey to mystery is actually about 20 pages of a thor versus hercules battle that we'll talk about and then the remaining 50 pages approximately are reprints of previous journey to mystery stories which i thought was very interesting because you now have marvel in in 1965 they've been around for a few years and you have readers who are you know like they're they need ways to catch up and there's no Marvel Unlimited, right? There's no Comicsology to go and find back issues. So Marvel, one of their strategies here was to use the annual to kind of try to say, hey, here's some of the important past stories that you yeah. can get all in one package. Um, and this would become a, a pretty common practice moving forward as Marvel kind of engaged with the eternal struggle of catching up new readers who come to the party, you know, after these things have been printed. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, <laughs> that's funny that, that that's a concern back in 1965, because, like, is it ever a concern today? I mean, th- th- that's the entire crux of our podcast, <laughs> is trying to yeah. usher new readers into Marvel, because it's a challenge. Yeah, totally. 
So the new story here in Journey to Mystery Annual is by Stan Lee, Jack Kirby. You have inks by Vince Coletta and letters by Sam Rosen. Uh, the first thing I'll note, even just based on the cover, is I did not think this issue looked like Jack Kirby. Did you have a similar sense? Yeah, the inking. The inking is like, it's pretty different. And uh, and it doesn't like, I, I think we're used to his inking being a lot thicker. Yeah. Thicker lines. And this is a lot more delicate work. And it, it does make it look a little different. I thought the same thing. Yeah, it was kind of strange. Um, the story begins with Loki and Thor traveling to Jotunheim together. And it's a nice kind of early introduction of Loki and Thor as this sort of uh, odd brother pairing, as opposed to just mortal enemies. And, you know, kind of like working together, even though they pretty clearly don't trust each other. Yeah. And Jotunheim, for those who are unfamiliar, is the realm of the Frost Giants. So Thor and and Loki, they travel here, find Frost Giants, and basically they pretty quickly find the rumored entrance to Olympus. And Thor defends this from some invading storm giants. The key call out for me here is Stan, Jack, and the gang are bringing in other mythologies with Olympus. So yeah. Asgard has been successful in Norse mythology to this point. They are now looking to uh, kind of get into Greek mythology. And as Thor's in this battle, he literally falls through like a portal to Olympus and and more or less immediately engages in battle with Hercules. Thor just lands in this new world that doesn't look all that different, and he starts crossing this stone bridge, this narrow stone bridge, and immediately this uh, this big beef boy starts trying to cross the other direction, <laughs> and uh, it just you know like starts barking, "Make way!" and Thor uh, re- refuses to cede ground <laughs> and uh, and get out of the way of this other guy. So this is Hercules on the other end, other bank of the river. He just rips the bridge out of the ground and throws it. <laughs> <laughs> out of anger and thor says oh uh and th- while th- when thor survives this hercules says this is no powerless bumpkin i face <laughs> uh and that's kind of the rest of this issue is the two of them are just mad at each other because they won't like get out of each other's way <laughs> yeah it's it's 10 pages of them fighting i'm gonna say not that intriguingly you know what i was into it i like i read this and i was like engaged with this fight all the way along so. That's awesome. Okay, so maybe my just my the fact that I've read it before, I was just like swipe, swipe, swipe. But yeah. if you're into it, no, that's good. Um, and it is like Hercules is an important introduction here. So yeah, they fight for ten pages until Zeus. He he's not characterized much more than just like he's a hothead. Yeah, yeah. big proud hothead. Just like Thor is characterized here, which is kind of unusual. Like he hasn't been characterized as being that like super arrogant yet but this is the beginning mm. of that yeah definitely definitely too proud to back down there, um, there is oh, sorry there's something about the the fighting here i i like this and i think uh, jack kirby did some creative things with having these two gods duke it out but there there are a few panels here where i just cannot tell what's happening you don't know what is actually like where people's bodies are in space there, there's some really strange yeah some some layouts that are tough to read um yeah but that's kind of the whole fight, right? They just fight yeah. to a standstill. Neither of them can get knocked down. And then they fight until Zeus shows up and Zeus steps in with this fierce red beard and uh, basically makes the boys be friends. So he says, <laughs> yeah. act nice. And, uh, you know, he steps into the Odin role and like that is how it ends is then they're like, oh, OK, <laughs> we'll, <laughs> yeah. we'll be friends then. Yeah, and that's it. I just it's like 
as introductions of characters go, it is insanely simple, but it is kind of important because not only does it introduce Hercules, but it introduces like the entire Greek mythology into the Marvel universe. Um, and through a semi-convenient portal in Asgard that I'm not sure there's, I think it ends with like a crashing and it's closed and it ends with, a, with Zeus building up a mountain over the portal. So no one will find it. And Thor worrying that Loki is going to find the portal. Mm, okay. There you go. Yeah, this is uh, so. This is the only Journey into Mystery we read this year. I read every issue of Journey into Mystery this year. I think it's the only comic that I read every single issue, and just in my spare time, because Journey into Mystery is getting great this year. Like, really, really compelling. They they're doing that thing where like it feels like one long story instead of this like serialized chapter by chapter. It's starting to build up into one story leading into the next, both in the A stories and the Tales of Asgard B stories. And the Tales of Asgard stuff is super fun. Yeah, I, I highly recommend if you if you like this or if you're just interested in Thor, like 65, it's taken off. Yeah, no, and, and I, Journey to Mystery is very good around this time. I think actually if you're reading the annual um, and you haven't read some of these issues, you know, if you're just doing the My Marvelous Year list, like go ahead and read the reprints. Because I know we covered the first story, which is Loki in 85. Yeah. Um, but we don't touch. Uh, they, they do Journey to Mystery 93, which is the introduction of the Radioactive Man, which is actually a really good one. Oh, I hate read. that. I hate that one. We're so opposed. To- <laughs> That's the one. Oh, it's. I'm not saying it's a great comic, but it's the introduction of Radioactive Man. Oh, um, yeah. I'm pretty yeah. sure Thor nukes China. You know, Thor, Thor which seems yeah, relevant. Thor is fighting the Chinese for India. My favorite part of that is at one point he ties together a whole string of Chinese tanks attaches his hammer to it and throws it across the border into india like as a mm-hmm. as a delivery here's some decommissioned tanks and just there's a really funny shot of just like a dozen tanks flying through the air attached to thor's hammer yeah yeah so and and then it covers journey to mystery 95 and journey to mystery 97 it's i i mean i would say it's kind of an odd selection of, yeah of the journey to mystery catalog yeah. i think yeah like you're saying zach probably probably go and just go through the issues this year yourself because i don't think these reprints include the Tales of Asgard backups either? There's, there's one of them. Is there one? Okay. Yeah. That's it, which is kind of a miss too. Yeah. That, it's the first one that just kind of introduces the concept. Cool, cool. So that's the, the first issue. And then next we're going to talk about Fantastic Four number 39. Um, we definitely are in that period now and probably have really have been in that period. But we're especially getting there now where Fantastic Four is heating up. And I mean, I say this every time, but we're truly <laughs> going to get to read every issue territory. Like when we hit 66, we're going to read 40 issues, 46 through 53 as part of the My Marvelous Year Club. And I mean, I would say read as much as you're interested in at this point, because we're going to skip a couple. Um, but generally speaking, Fantastic Four is getting about as good as it's going to get uh, right around this time. Yeah, well, I mean, we read a lot this year between last week's episode and this one we're reading like six issues or something Mm -hmm. so issue number 39 begins with a story called a blind man shall lead them and it's got a great cover with dr doom looming over the city and daredevil leading the fantastic four yeah there's also a nice little detail on this cover of the mms wants you billboard (laughs) on the building it's the only like detail on the buildings but the uh the mmms is the mary marvel marching society that uh that stan and the gang had kind of announced as you know it's the, it's the marvel club of the time and it's always got ben Grimm as kind of the logo uh basically as like the face of the marvel universe saying hey come join our club yeah it does on. have fantastic Four number 39 does have one of the more preposterous last issue recaps 
oh, um, yeah, that I think I've ever read. <laughs> so <laughs> the basically it tells you that the Fantastic Four survived a nuclear explosion. So great start. They then drifted at sea for 24 hours, like borderline unconscious. I don't know how how they were staying afloat during this stretch. Um, and then eventually they're rescued by the Navy and discover that they have lost their powers. It's fun. They kind of, uh, they slowly hint at this, that something's wrong with them. And you don't even really notice that the thing is not there, right? The thing is not among them until they're mm -hmm. all sitting in this rescue boat and someone comes up and asks a question. And then you notice that it's human Ben Grimm who tells him to like get lost. And you're like, oh, something's weird here. Like, it's not the thing. It's Ben Grimm. Yeah. And they're feeling kind of morose and and upset about having lost their powers uh cut back to new york city when they get back and reed constructs some artificial power technology so the fantastic four can continue and one thing i was struck by in these scenes is the intense desperation particularly on the part of reed to continue being the fantastic four I, yeah i i almost it, well they, they keep talking about it as if um they keep talking about it because they need to become the Fantastic Four. Otherwise, their enemies will find out and they'll be in danger. Which, like, if they're not the Fantastic Four and they're not a threat anymore, is it really that important? But, I mean, kind of, because at this point, a huge part of the villain's motivations are just, I just need to defeat the hero. There's not much more to it, right? Like, it's not... I don't want them to stop me from doing something. It's just like their their primary motivation is to become powerful, to destroy the Fantastic Four. And I hate that. I think it's super dull without any kind of bigger ambition or bigger motivation, especially when it doesn't feel like a personal... With Doom, it somewhat feels like a personal vendetta. Like he feels humiliated by all their past defeats and feels like he needs to win back his dignity. But a right. lot of them, it's just, let's all band together to kill Spider-Man because we don't like him. I mean, I think the like the Frightful Four are probably yeah. a good example of that. Yeah. I I think part of it is they've been arrested or thwarted by this team, and now mm -hmm. they seek revenge. You know, in that in that yeah. sort of traditional supervillain, um, you know, ideation. I I reads desperation here. It reads um, a little odd. I mean, yeah, you can kind of hear the argument of we need to be able to protect ourselves, but it's also they've only, I guess. It's weird because they've been the Fantastic Four for four years in publication history. But I guess if you think about it in terms of like, again, we're almost at issue number 40, like all the adventures they've gone on, they've been to space and viewed the scrolls multiple times. They fought so many enemies. I mean, I think like their career as a crime fighting unit, I guess, in Marvel time feels longer than than actually reading where you might just think like, oh, we got these weird powers and <laughs> like that's that's the end of that. Like he is absolutely not willing to go back to yeah. to not having powers. And and they don't even really talk about Ben Grimm and if he's <laughs> happy or not. Like it doesn't not even until get, later. Yeah. It doesn't get discussed right now that he is human and maybe that's, you know, a positive thing for him. It's just about like they need to get their powers back. So yeah. So redevelop all these these technical ways for them to have powers, the strangest of which is um, creating a thing robot for Ben Grimm <laughs> to control like a like a remote control car. Yeah. Um, I assume this was gonna be like the thing suit that he steps into. No, no, he's just controlling it from a distance. And he's like, It must be you, Ben. No one else knows how the thing moves. <laughs> yeah. Just yeah. Like, yeah. 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 I mean it. It begs the question of 
why do they need the thing if Reed can just create robots that are just as strong as the thing? Like, <laughs> well, and, yeah. and what what we see is that basically controlling this robot is is not nearly as easy as anyone would hope, especially for Big Ben Grimm. So we cut to now Latveria, where Doctor Doom is watching a stage magician perform, <laughs> <laughs> and he hates we it. Talked, he hates it, right? He's he's you know he's kind of this cruel dictator, and we talked about I think last. Or maybe it was during um, Fantastic Four Annual when we talked about Doom's origin and how he's kind of like a benevolent person where his people kind of love him. And here we see him as like the true tyrannical dictator where he is like making this magician perform at his whim and he hates everything he does. And he's like basically going to, you know, execute this man for not. And it's like, oh, he's no, this is the supervillain dictator yeah. that this is why it's not like cool that Dr. Doom is ruling a country. Yeah, tough crowd. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, so the stage magician reveals uh, he, he hypnotizes Doctor Doom or promises to hypnotize him. Doom says, "You know that's a fool's trick." Um, but in doing so, he reveals Reed's hypnosis from the annual number mm-hmm. two, which, if you remember, uh, Reed and Doom entered the what was it the encephalo encephalo gun yeah. gun and uh, gun? had a yeah. mind battle in which Reed basically. Um, convinced Doom that he had defeated the Fantastic Four and and could go back and never basically bother them again. And Doom realizes now that this was all a ruse. Yeah, yeah. And which is humiliating. And that actually does give him a decent motivation for just wanting to, like, defeat the yeah. Fantastic Four because he feels yeah. humiliated. So Doom wants to strike back. Um, the, the, as, you know, he's preparing to do this, the Fantastic Four call in their lawyer, Matt Murdock, to account for their last will and testament. Again, they are not really taking this loss of powers lightly. I, I was thinking uh, it's kind of interesting with Matt Murdock that his blindness is not that interesting to me at this point as Daredevil. Like, I don't think that that... Because he, he basically acts like he's not blind generally as a superhero. Um, but him being a lawyer is much more interesting. Like, mm-hmm. all, the, all the lawyerly adventures he gets into... And like being a lawyer for other superheroes, like Namor approaching him as a lawyer, and they, I think I think that aspect of him is more interesting to me at the moment. Yeah, yeah, no, totally. And it's like you don't get a lot of him actually navigating the world as as someone who can't see because mm-hmm. his Daredevil powers are so sort of over the top at this point, especially like yeah. a little bit later, you'll get like little details here and there where he's yeah. like. You know, he has to, like, ask somebody sitting next to him, like, hey, are there tire tracks on the road? Like, he can't see. You know, it's, like, certain things he can't notice. Um, but, yeah, as a lawyer, it's, like, no, he's actually, like, a blind man. Yeah. <laughs> you know, performing law. It is interesting. So, while Matt Murdock's visiting, the team is suddenly attacked. Uh, Matt Murdock, of course, quickly changes into his Daredevil guys. And we basically find that Doctor Doom is attacking them. He shoots a projection skywriting, that old Marvel classic uh, writing in the sky of the Fantastic Four shall now die by the hand of Dr. Doom. So he announces to the entire city or anyone in view. So we find that Dr. Doom is using Reed's inventions um, in the Baxter building against the team. I got to admit, this was not a detail that I was particularly prepared for because I just assumed the Fantastic Four were training inside the Baxter building. Yeah, it's just like they're in a warehouse across town. Why? I don't really know. And they forgot to lock the door. Like, there's no, they don't give much reason how Doom got into the Baxter building. Like, they just yeah. don't lock it. It's kind of a weird turn. 
Um, but Doom, basically, he's, you know, finds all these read inventions. He starts throwing them out there. Uh, he's confused that the Fantastic Four are not really fighting back. And eventually, after a number of attacks, basically realizes through his superior intellect that they must be powerless. Meanwhile, Daredevil dis- um, distracts Dr. Doom to enable the Fantastic Four to get inside the Baxter building. And Daredevil is the clear savior of the team at this point. Yeah. I think, you know, all of these inventions and ways that the FF are trying to replicate their powers, basically, they fail pretty heartily. I mean, yeah. they're just not, they're not the same as the team actually having their powers. Uh, so if Daredevil was not there, there's really no way that they're going to make it to the Baxter building alive. Well, so Doom is using all of Reed Richards' inventions. And it's curious because some of them, it's like, why did Reed build a machine that just causes tornadoes <laughs> you but know, they do he, explain it as like a way to a way to like mitigate other weather disasters but there's <laughs> the obvious like well don't you think somebody might use this for harm like he's not thinking these things through yeah there's a lot of stuff like that there, there's there's a few that you're like oh okay i can see why he created this but there's some that it's just like oh that's just a weapon of mass destruction reed like, yeah <laughs> what do you yeah. think and i like it because i mean it is fun like doom keeps picking up these new toys and is like, oh, this is uh, this is cute. Well, I might as well use this. Like, I could build this much more efficiently, but might as well use it to defeat the Fantastic Four. I do like him disparaging all of Reed's inventions while simultaneously needing to use them. Yeah, and <laughs> and then when he discovers that the Fantastic Four has lost, have lost their power, he says, I can defeat them immediately, but no, that will be too easy. I'll toy with them a while longer. This is too glorious a situation. It must last as long as possible. Which is like Doctor Doom is just edging himself <laughs> for all of us to watch. He's reveling in yeah, yeah in this moment for sure. Yeah, and this issue just kind of ends. This was one of the ones where I was surprised. Like I went to flip to the next panel on the panel by panel view, and it was like, oh, it's over. <laughs> mm-hmm. Like just in mid attack, because it does lead directly into the next one, which starts out with Doctor Doom. He's sending he sends these flying cameras down into the city to track the Fantastic Four. And this is such a weird detail. Daredevil, his cane has really be, <laughs> become I like this, this, yeah. this utility belt full of different tools. Uh, you know, it's mostly a grappling hook for him to swing around the city. Oh, no. <laughs> yeah. He pulls out a trigger on it and then he pulls up like iron sights, you know, or like crosshairs at the end mm-hmm. of it. And using the sound of the flying camera, shoots it out of the sky like a gun, which is just his his cane is also a rifle. He, he converts it into like a sniper. It's it's a cool Kirby design, but it is a weird turn for Daredevil. And also, why does he have crosshairs? Except maybe to fool people into thinking he's looking down the crosshairs. <laughs> Daredevil as a sniper would be such a strange, like, Elseworld style story. Because yeah. he could, like, listen for their heartbeats, you know? Yeah, like, yeah, sure. You could do it that way. Um, but yeah, it's, it's not a visual you get. No, it's very strange. So, uh... Reed, Johnny, and Sue Storm all make it to the Baxter building, and they go in the lobby, and they're attacked by the, the building's defenses, these electrical bolts. <laughs> it cuts to Dr. Doom up in one of the upper floors, and there's just an open window behind him, and you just see Daredevil sneaking in it, <laughs> which is very funny. Like, Doom just didn't close the window behind him. Reed Reed, and Reed helps the, uh, the rest of them dodge these electrical bolts, and they get into this elevator, Doctor Doom is fighting Daredevil hand to hand and kind of defeats him and knocks him out. <laughs> ben shows up. He hasn't been part of this for no reason. Like he he just says, "Oh, I went looking for the Thingbot. 
but I couldn't find it. And that's why I wasn't here for the first three pages. <laughs> I like the idea that Ben's like, listen, I don't have my thing powers. This is kind of crazy. I'm going to go like, you know, alert the local authorities. <laughs> like, yeah, yeah. Just kind of steps out for a moment. So they all get on the elevator. And I guess Daredevil, Daredevil fighting Dr. Doom has been distracting him from activating the elevator's defenses until the last moment. And uh, when Dr. Doom knocks out Daredevil, he finally can activate the elevator defenses right right after the Fantastic Four escapes and jumps out of the elevator. And the defenses are that the elevator bursts into fire and the cable cuts and drops to the ground, which is like, Reed, what are you thinking? Like, <laughs> like, can you imagine him ever actually using this? Oh, someone's coming up in the elevator. Like, He's not out here taking prisoners. If they have a home invader. Yeah, it's very strange that like all of Reed's inventions become are, are all very evil in the hands of Doctor Doom. But it's still like, yeah. why did you build that? So the Fantastic Four come up and they're kind of trying to stop Doctor Doom. I like Ben Grimm in his human form goes up and punches Doom and uh, and is grappling with him. And Doctor Doom is like, who are you? Why are you here? Which is it's just funny. He has no idea who Ben Grimm is. Well, he should have, though, because they went to college together. <laughs> really good point yeah yeah oh I, I mean it's been a minute fantastic four number 41 is definitely gonna have a letter about that like let's keep an eye out for yeah <laughs> the letter section um reed richards pulls out that gun that he's used at least twice now to give the fantastic four back their powers this bugged me yeah well i mean it's kind of just like and they are just like oh why didn't you use that in the first place and he's like why didn't they just go to the gun that drove me nuts reed says something like it had to charge <laughs> <laughs> I needed to charge for a few days. Good Reed voice. I, I appreciate that. <laughs> uh, Reed turns Ben Grimm back into the thing. And I think Sue or Johnny says like, no, wait, maybe Ben can still have a normal life. And Reed mm -hmm. just uh, doesn't even get him a moment's thought. Just shoots, <laughs> shoots Ben with this and is like, no, it's more. We need the thing in this moment. It's much more important that we have the thing back. He doesn't ask Ben. They don't consider it. He doesn't consider it for a heartbeat. It's really strange. I just thought it would be a, a tougher choice, but it's not. Well, Reed's obsession with getting back to the way they were is is extremely unlikable, I thought, yeah. through these two issues. And I think this moment in particular is like he spent how many hours now trying to, to make a formula to change Ben back to or change the thing back to Ben Grimm. And, yeah. and now just without a moment's thought is like, nope, we need him. He'll be helpful against Doom and like doesn't even consider for a moment. Yeah, so there's a there's a bunch more fight here. <laughs> Doctor Doom activates the in-floor refrigeration unit, which turns them all into snowmen, which is very strange. Like again, Reed, why <laughs> why does your floor panels have a refrigeration unit? Anyway, uh, eventually it comes down to a Doctor Doom versus the Thing fight one on one, and this was really fun. I really this is an all timer. Yeah, yeah, yeah like. The two of them fighting, you know, it's kind of Dr. Doom's technology versus the Thing's strength. And uh, what's really fun is just the Thing is angry. He's really mad and it really comes across like you feel mm -hmm. his anger. And, you know, he talks about like how he's going to peel him out of that tin can. And you kind of think he's really going to hurt Dr. Doom. Eventually he wins out over him and he starts just like crushing his crushing his gauntlets in his hands and starts like tearing the metal off of his body before they, they kind of stop him and slow him down. That's the one thing I love about the build here is, is like you said, that feeling that like, oh, Ben's really going to hurt him this time. Like yeah. he's not messing around because usually when we see the thing, he's joking. He's yeah. he's making wise cracks. And here he's just so mad that he's been transformed from 
um, his human form back into the thing. And it's like, it's kind of not even Doom's fault, you know, like kind of in a way. Um, but he he escalates the situation and, and Ben takes it out on him. And yeah, like that image of him crushing Doom's hands is one that has always stood out to me. Um, as like just this kind of moment of pure rage that you don't necessarily expect from Ben. Yeah. 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 I liked it. Uh, and then they, uh, I actually don't remember. Does Doom escape? Put him in jail. Somehow he gets away. <laughs> I didn't bother writing it down. Yeah. I, I don't either. Fight, I guess kind of like that was the highlight. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I don't, I don't think they like capture or anything. I'm pretty sure Doom gets away. Yeah. Yeah. Really good issue. Uh, well, Half a good issue, I guess. Like, the, the second half is pretty good. Yeah, it builds to a good issue. Uh, 39 and 40 both had their moments, but had enough weirdness and, like, moments that you're like, wait, what? That they held it back for me? But, um, yeah, yeah, pretty good. I was definitely most bothered by that we know the Fantastic Four have this gun that restores powers because they used it when they were on the Skrull yeah. uh, homeworld that we talked about. And, and the idea that, like, it was kind of like Stan and Jack forgot about it. Until yeah, later, yeah. you know, until they could Deus Ex Machina it. That that I thought felt a little lame, but good issue all in all. And that's going to take us into a big one: Fantastic Four Annual Number Three. So the Fantastic Four Annuals have been um, really good and really big deals. Like the, Marvel's done a nice job in the early years of making these annuals kind of an event. Yeah, every definitely. time. You know, the first one was basically Namor um, and Atlantis attack style, not the later 80s event and the second one was all origin of dr doom and that big dr doom first tff story and here we get finally in 1965 the wedding of sue storm and reed richards uh this is a big moment for marvel again like from the launch of fantastic four number one in and we talk about here in november 61 until this issue which came out in october 65 we're almost at a full four years of Marvel Comics in the Silver Age. And basically, everybody comes out. Every Marvel character that's been created, every villain, everyone. <laughs> I started writing a list. I was like, oh, right, I'm going to write down the cameos. that, And I, I got down. Okay, I'm going to go through this so quick. Uh, Tony Stark, Puppet Master, Nick Fury, S.H.I.E.L.D., Red Ghost, Mole Man, Professor X, The X-Men, Doctor Strange, Super Scroll, G- Grey Gargoyle, Kang, The Mandarin, The Black Knight, Daredevil, Hydra, Captain America, Iron Man, Cobra, Executioner, Enchantress, Hawkeye, Mr. Hyde, Spider-Man. And that's when I stopped. (laughs) And I stopped and was like, there's just too many. Like, there's still more. And I'm tired of writing. Like, everyone, everyone shows up in this one. It's a cool showcase of here's everyone we've created in four years. And it really highlights. Like, we, we often talk about the 60s as just... As obviously like the origins of Marvel Comics, but it is like the burst of creativity yeah. from from the minds at play here. Whether you're talking Stan Lee, Jack Kirby, Steve Ditko, whomever, like the sheer amount of characters that not only came out of this period, but like that we're talking about today, 80 years later after Marvel Comics number one in the Golden Age. You know, this is Marvel's big 80. The majority of these are still around. Are still relevant, yeah. And obviously you get some that you're like, oh, Mr. Hyde, big deal. But like he was on... Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. <laughs> like, these characters have a pop culture relevance that is astounding. So, all right, rant over. This issue is by Lee Kirby, inks by Vince Coletta, got Ari Smek, and, and the bullpen gang is credited, yeah. which uh, I think is a first, actually, that, like, the entire bullpen gets credited here for FF number three, because, again, this is a moment. So, 
the kind of in the early stages here, you get Dr. Doom. He's reading of the wedding in, in the newspaper. Um, he decides that it's perfect time for his ultimate revenge. What better time than to, to ruin their wedding, which sure. Everyone's gathered outside the Baxter building, uh, you know, including like a huge press corps. It's obviously like, you know, think about like royal wedding style. Yeah. Everyone, you know, wants to talk about this. And one nice detail here is for security, we get uh, the kind of intro of Nick Fury and S.H.I.E.L.D. actually like on duty protecting the Fantastic Four, which we have not talked about yet. Um, Nick Fury and S.H.I.E.L.D.'s connections. We will in a bit here in Strange Tales. So the issue continues with uh, Doom uses a hate machine. Uh, it, maybe he calls it something else, but it's that's effectively what it is. Something like that. I'm surprised he didn't it didn't tie it into the hate monger because it's literally the same exact thing that he did mm-hmm. uh, back in one of the ones I read. And that's an idea that uh, that Marvel and I, I think of like Jack Kirby comics actually using quite a bit. Um, Because later in like when Kirby gets on cap in the late 70s, he has this big issue called the Mad Bomb. Uh And that that whole idea is all about everyone just overcome with hate. And that's where you get these kind of iconic panels of like Captain America and Sam Wilson Falcon, you know, fighting each other and and getting like borderline like racial resentment towards each other. Um, And it's, it's a concept that Kirby, I think, will continue to play with the idea of like people so overcome by hate that they they act they act like maniacs essentially, but Doom's using it here um, to move all the Fantastic Four enemies into action against the team. Right, which is uh, like his level of control over a vast majority of people with this machine is is concerning. It just turns. I mean, it basically turns into a um, a showcase of one or two villains attack at a time, and the Fantastic Four, with the help of different superheroes and superhero teams, fight them off. Um, yeah, I don't know how much you want if you want to go in detail one at a time, or if you want to. No, just... I, I kind of started doing the same thing you did, where I was like, I was kind of writing down the battles. I was like, "Ooh, Mole Man, stop by the thing in the X Men. Red Ghost, stop by Doctor Strange." But then, like, it's just it's the most everyone all out brawl imaginable. Yeah, I mean, it's it's truly like every character that has been created, like we were saying. Um, it's it is you know, it's like people talk about the coming of Galactus is like the first Marvel Comics event. Um, but this is an event style comic in so many ways because hmm. events, as they're known today, you get these huge action sequences of you know somebody trying to draw every character on a page, you know, yeah. fighting, and that's that's what this comic is. Yeah, yeah, and it, it it's fun. There's like so Mole Man attacks and he brings his army of mole people with him, and that's the point where the X Men steps in to fight. And uh, <laughs> the the best part about this is they defeat Mole Man and they just start like packing them back in the hole that he came from. <laughs> uh, so they just, they pack this hole full of Mole Man and then I think the thing just jumps, like stands on top and starts jumping down on it. Like, yeah. like, <laughs> like it's sod. Just pushing him down and like, <laughs> and then I can't remember. And then they just cover the hole up and just like, well, that's that. Like, <laughs> yeah. Shove him back underground. My favorite was, um, okay. So Atuma comes out of the ocean. So like, and oh, this yeah. is like, I, I've just found this moment so comical. So everyone's fighting on land. Atuma comes out of the ocean and he's like, this is time to invade with my army of, you know, Atlanteans. And he's, he's who? Cause I didn't actually know who he was. Atuma is a Namor villain. Essentially. Okay. He's gotcha. like, you know, he's a, it would be conqueror. He's one of the Atlanteans who wants to take over earth in a way that Namor oscillates between, um, but basically their entire Atlantean force is dragged back under sea by a runaway hydra bomb, 
which we saw <laughs> earlier in the issue, Daredevil take out. So like Hydra basically put a bomb on a truck. They were going to crash it into the building. And again, we'll get to Hydra's introduction here in a minute. But Daredevil stops that. He sends the truck just careening towards the ocean. And and then that truck like, sucks up the entire Atlantean war force. So they're, <laughs> they don't even make it to the wedding or the battle. Yeah, right. Which is pretty excellent. Uh, the Red Ghost shows up with his apes. And Doctor Strange just walks in and banishes them all to a distant netherworld, which, mm-hmm. oof, yikes. <laughs> yeah. 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 That's. I feel like they, that's they a detail rough. that's just overlooked that they're just like floating in limbo now. <laughs> Their fate is much worse than a lot of these other villains who just get like yeah. walk away with, you know, bruises. Um, <laughs> the, the Watcher shows up. Yeah, it does. Yeah, I was going to I was going to go with that, too, because so the Watcher, let's read. Um, so, again, like classic Watcher, I can't interfere, but. I can take you to my house and show you all my cool gizmos that'll let you influence the state of things. It's so, just—it's just like it, this is the most him sticking his uh, his nose into things because it's just like uh, you know I can't help you defeat them, but my gun is just sitting here on a table and I'm gonna turn my back and if when I turn around it's gone. Well, and also how is this how is this a cosmic crisis? You know, yeah, so like right. you think no. about the sorts of things the Watcher could interfere with, um, like why why they're wedding. And, and I mean, it's <laughs> not even like he just warns them. Like he brings Reed across the universe to a cache of weapons and is just like, yeah, uh, hoping hope none of these weapons disappear while I'm not looking. Like, <laughs> <laughs> totally. and then like, yeah, and then just zaps him back to Earth. Like he helps a lot. <laughs> yeah. He, also, he has never looked more like a pudgy baby he's got like real thigh fat rolls here and like it, it's very cute <laughs> he's got nothing he's just sitting on the moon snacking i mean I, he just has that like that really funny proportions of of a you know nine month old baby with real fat fat little thighs and arms it's very cute <laughs> but still rocking a toga all the same yep uh, so yeah, so Reed takes a time displacer from the Watcher, and I mean, more or less, this ends the battle and starts the wedding. Like basically, it sends everyone back to before this battle happened with no memory of attacking, which is yeah, it's nice and clean and just like he's like, and Doctor Doom won't even remember having done this, and yeah, which is also a... just like, won't Doctor Doom if he doesn't remember doing it still think that he has to do it and just attack again? <laughs> yeah. yeah. Anyway, time travel. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So yeah, so the wedding begins and it's it's happening. And my favorite moment of this is the very last page is Dum Dum Dugan and Gabe Jones, we know from the Howling Commandos. Yep. Uh, they keep uh, um, some wedding crashers, Stan Lee and Jack Kirby, from attending the wedding because they did not have an invite. <laughs> so we talked about, you know, the meta narrative of Stan and Jack writing themselves into Marvel Comics. Uh, this is definitely one of my favorite instances where they can't quite get into the wedding. Yeah. Yeah. This was a fun, this is a fun issue. And then this, as just like Journey into Mystery, ends with a couple of reprints of a few different issues. Yeah. Right. So uh, next up, we moved into Uncanny X Men number 14. So this is going to take us into a three part uh, Sentinel trilogy essentially. And again, this is the introduction of the X-Men hunting robots, the Sentinels. Um, I I think as a whole, like, again, we don't read a ton of Silver Age X-Men, probably not as much as you'd expect if you 
you know, again, like coming to this fresh, you might expect the X-Men to be a bigger deal than they are. Uh, that said, like they've, you know, we really love those juggernaut issues that we talked yeah. about in X-Men um, 12 and 13. And then they continue with like really good ideas here from from a creative team of Stan Lee, Jack Kirby layouts, Jay Gavin pencils, Vince Coletta inks, and Art Simek on letters. I think these are a mix of good ideas and then some weird ideas. Like you, oh, you'll yeah. see like th- this is a good idea hidden but. Be- beneath a bunch of layers of fat that's going to get trimmed later yeah yeah totally so this one starts out with the the x-men recovering from their fight with juggernaut which i I liked an acknowledgement of like that really took the wind out of them they're all still they're like in rehab with doctor or with professor x and uh the beast the beast has crutches or something I, i don't remember but he says something about that um he he's hobbling about like some mere vulnerable homo sapien and Professor X corrects him and says, like, you must never feel superior to the, the humans. Uh, and, you know, we're we're not any better than them. And, like, I, I just like that first acknowledgement. I mean, this is a theme that's going to run through this issue, but it's setting up that idea of mutants feeling superior to humans or, you know, that, that the dangers of using your differences uh, in, in the way that humans view that in mutants and the way that that can be intoxicating to the mutants i also like that beast would would um like articulate some of those feelings because again like you know it's easy to forget but like the original x-men are teenagers yeah they are not fully formed adults they are still learning about the world and like it would be an easy thing to think of of homo sapiens as lesser especially with all the X-Men have been through so it is a nice learning moment of of somebody who's not just villainous cackling magneto to yeah, express yeah. those sentiments. Yeah, it's just, I mean, he's a, he's a super fast, agile teenager, right? Like, we're going to get into actually his story, but he generally looks like a normal guy, just with big feet. But, uh, like, <laughs> besides his feet, he kind of passes just as a normal, like, handsome teenage boy. And why wouldn't he feel a little better and a little superior? <laughs> Though it is baked in to their, like, Latin name, Homo Superior. Yeah. Uncanny X-Men number 14 uh, it kind of kicks off with Dr. Bolivar Trask holds a press conference to announce uh, his findings on the mutant menace. And he's, you know, basically he's doing the whole spiel of, you know, we have cold wars, hot wars, atom bombs, but we're overlooking our greatest threat, which is, of course, the mutant menace. Mutants walk among us, hidden, unknown, waiting, waiting for their moment to strike. Yeah. So it's it really builds like the idea of the... Uh, TV personality kind of contributing to fear and hatred of the other. Yeah, sure. This demagogue. Yeah. In this case, you know, the X-Men. And Professor X gets, um, he sees this and he's greatly disturbed. And he's kind of like, I knew this day would come, but I'm disturbed all the same. I think understandably so. Can, can we can we talk about Bolivar for a second? Because I, I think the way that he talks about mutants is really interesting in the context of what we've been seeing in Marvel Comics. Mm-hmm. Because like that thing I just read... That sounds like he's talking about, like, communist sympathizers. And they have been so staunchly anti-communist in, in probably, I, I'm coming to realize, probably due to necessity, right? Because you just don't want to be labeled anything but anti-communist at this time. Mm-hmm. You don't want to be labeled as maybe a communist sympathizer because there's big political and financial repercussions for that. We're getting closer to counterculture, really. Yeah. 
being uh, being more prominent. But yeah, yeah certainly. It's, it's just such a strange, like, because clearly the sympathies lie with the mutants here, generally, right? Like, oh, these people are getting uh, stirred up into this mass hysteria about mutants walk among us. And it could be, you know, it could be your friend, your neighbor, even your children, which is mm-hmm. like something I feel like we would have heard in a straight-faced way against communists in issues like two or three years ago. Like mm. the, the change between that is really big. Just the language that he, they're using, I think they're drawing that parallel. I think we we view now the like the mutant thing as a, a civil rights metaphor and even more recently like an LGBT metaphor often. But yeah. I, I feel like right now at the beginning, it might have been like critiquing the anti-communist fervor and that kind of like overreaction to being terrified about spies among us. Yeah, no, it's definitely it's definitely an emotion that I think has a number of sources and yeah. and they're starting to realize that mutants can kind of fit that, that metaphor, regardless of the, you know, like whatever the metaphor is, is tied to. Yeah. I think. So professor X hearing this, he gets the TV programming director <laughs> on the horn, like instantly. And basically is like, get me a public debate with Trask this instant. Like he's very demanding. And for whatever reason, they're like, Oh, professor X, you're a known scholar. We will do this. We will, <laughs> we will cater to your whims. Crazy man. And of course, Trask will be up for it. Yeah. So they, they schedule a TV debate for the next night. This is a, uh, this is, you know, primetime TV. And during the debate of professor X and Boulevard Trask, um, well, let me start by saying that professor X, he speaks first. And he tries to sort of sell the world on the, um, you know, the like the reality of of mutants and and the fact that, you know, these could be people in your family and that it's not necessarily something to fear and that they're, they're people just like you who just have, you know, different genetics that manifest in different ways. And basically we get like a we get a view of the audiences watching this and just not buying it. And it's yeah. basically like. It conveys like Professor X as an extremely ineffective speaker on the subject matter, or at a minimum, um, the American people as an extremely uh, unsympathetic audience. Yeah, yeah. I mean, they kind of do this. Who's this stuffy egghead speaking down to us? Like, yeah, that that he just kind of seems like some snobby intellectual versus Trask, who speaks with you know all this fire and fury. Yeah, totally. And uh, during the debate, Trask so. It's kind of weird because Trask easily probably could have won the debate the way we were seeing it play just by <laughs> oh saying God, his yeah. deal. But instead of just saying his deal, he decides that this is the moment to unveil his army of sentinels that he has created. And he brings in these weird uh, like kind of purple and yellow robots. They aren't quite designed the way that probably we know sentinels um, today, yeah. but they're, they're approaching and basically the sentinels – almost immediately turn on him and say, we don't need your orders. Yeah, well, th- they burst in and, and grab Professor X, and he's like, this is just a, a demonstration of their power and how they could th- could stop the mutants if they mm-hmm. were here in this room. And the, the moderator is like, oh, wow, great point. Like, <laughs> you definitely, <laughs> by physically overpowering your opponent with a robot, you definitely have shown that you're... <laughs> Your argument is superior. No one, no one questions the fact that it's totally inappropriate to burst out killer robots during the, <laughs> of the debate. They're just so wowed by it. Yeah, yeah, it's like the most normal thing in the world. Can, can we also talk about Bolivar Trask is an anthropologist and how bad at anthropology he is because he's like, oh well, I'm studying mutants which need to be destroyed. The the idea that uh, you know 
an anthropologist whose job is to study other cultures, but <laughs> he really wants to stick his fingers in uh, the, the, uh, the way that this, this other, I don't know if you call it a culture. I, I feel like maybe he got called the anthropologist with a fundamental misunderstanding of what that means. Uh, I mean, they make a point of saying that Trask is an anthropologist and Professor X says he was an anthropologist, not a robotics expert. He made a fatal flaw in his calculation on the Sentinels. And it's like, yeah, go figure. Yeah, the fatal flaw is that they're sentient. <laughs> yeah. No, I think that does make him a robotics expert if he accidentally stumbled into creating sentient robots. <laughs> yeah. yeah, no kidding. Um, so as the Sentinels attack, Professor X warns, uh, the vacationing X-Men, you know, I could have mentioned earlier in the issue, basically, uh, after the battle with the Juggernaut, they all got sent home, you know, for a vacation and he calls to them and says, and, you know, it's an emergency and as the team, so basically now we get a sequence of the team kind of coming together, arriving to fight and, and fight off these Sentinels and help the professor Cyclops, uh, loses his glasses on the way there in a taxi cab and he publicly shoots his beam out of the taxi. Um, but he, but he, you know, has this accident where he loses glasses in a cab, and the crowd turns on him very quickly, which I think is one of the earlier instances we see of this, where you have people yelling, "He's a mutant! Get him!" And they're kind of chasing him, and Cyclops has to run away and escape. So the central tension of of the world fearing and hating mutants is really coming together uh, yeah. in this issue. There's something interesting before Scott Summers accidentally blasted this cab. You heard him talking to himself about like his internal anxiety that he's going to hurt someone with his eyes which is pretty interesting like it's the first look that scott summers has this real concern that he can't control himself and his lack of control over his power is going to uh, cause injury to somebody there's also an interesting conversation that happens between i think it's it's iceman and it's either beast or angel oh okay iceman is talking to angel and angel is binding his wings down to his body and Iceman says something like, I think it'll be fine if we expose our powers. Like, I don't know what the big deal is. People aren't going to be that worried. Like, you should just let your wings out. And Warren Worthington kind of corrects him and is like, no, no, it's more complicated than you think. Which, which is also interesting, just that, like, difference in opinions about uh, some mutants. You know, I mean, he, he's kind of a naive kid thinking that, like, oh, yeah, it's fine. Like, I'll just tell people who I am and they'll treat me okay. And then you kind of immediately see that that's not quite the case. Yeah. So the issue ends with uh, Professor, Cyclops, Beast, and Iceman uh, all fighting Sentinels. And uh, one of them falls over and it mutters the words, Master Mold. And that is going to take <laughs> us into Uncanny X-Men number 15, where things start to get a little weirder. So the Sentinels, the Sentinels in 14 grab Boulevard Trask and fly off with him. And the X-Men follow him to this, like, this just grassy hill out in the middle of nowhere. And when they approach at the end of the issue, the hill rises up uh, to reveal this underground complex full of guns and this big metal fortress. And that's how that issue ends. The next one picks up with the X-Men trying to attack this big fortress. And uh, Beast and Iceman go first. <laughs> Iceman creates this disc of ice on the ground. And Scott Summers just blasts it with his eye beams like a... Um, what are they called? What's that ice sport called? Were you curling? Curling, yeah, 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 like a curling puck. Yeah, um, yeah. Scott just blasts it through the air, but uh, Beast and Iceman are immediately captured by these long robotic arms and pulled into the facility. I will call out a detail here. Your favorite line on page five from Iceman: "We're big boys now." Oh yes, I saw that. I I actually saw that and went, 
No, just let it go. <laughs> I'm not going to write it down. So they get captured uh, in, in this facility. Bolivar Trask is being held by the Master Mold, which is basically a giant sentinel on a throne. Yeah. And he is the sentinel that creates other sentinels. But he lays out that like he can't create more sentinels without Bolivar Trask's help. Um, and the sentinels, I don't know if we laid it out, the sentinels are turning against humans because they feel like humans are too humans are too stupid to basically protect themselves and to really make the best choices <laughs> for themselves. Yeah. So it's one of these like, oh, we're going to conquer you so that we can protect you. You're too dumb to, you know, self-determine. So we're, we're going to take over things so that you don't injure yourself. You know, and I mentioned here, like, we're a few years before Ultron is going to enter the scene. Yeah. So this is definitely Marvel's first, like, big attempt at robots and AI being yeah. a threat to humanity. Yeah. Um, so the Master Mold, I, I don't know exactly what it is, but he just needs Bolivar Trask's help to create more Sentinels so they can create this enormous army of unstoppable robots. They pull Beast in, and he's tied up to a table, and I don't really know why, but Master Mold says, bring in the Psychoprobe, we're going to probe this mutant's mind. I don't think they really explain why the Master Mold wants to probe Beast's mind, but this is why we get the origin of Beast, is <laughs> we basically see what Bolivar Trask and the Master Mold are, are hearing from him as Beast lays out his story. It's basically, he's just a teenager who started developing these acrobatic powers and other kids were making fun of him for it, <laughs> which is not that believable. He can just backflip real good and he was shunned for it. So I, I don't know. He was kind of like a star athlete too. Yeah. Um, it does it does highlight like how strange Beast's power set is by comparison. Yeah. You know, like the other mutants have pretty clear, different sort of structures. Whereas Beast, like, again, like you said earlier, like he just has really big feet. Like that's really his thing. And then it manifests in, in agile ways. Um, yeah, it's not like the most uh, compelling, I guess, as like big mutant transformations go. And to your point, like why Master Mold? I don't know if it's just like, hey, if we understand how mutants are formed, we can stop them better i they don't really say that but maybe that's the implication i i don't i don't think we've ever said this but if you're thinking of beast you're generally thinking of a big blue furry monster i think that's yeah he's not that right now i actually have no idea how he shifts (laughs) so like (laughs) i'm very curious about this i've read it too and i just don't remember Um, yeah but right now he's just a normal looking boy there's two things about this, like these little cutaways. This is while the X-Men are still like fighting to try to get in. It keeps cutting back and forth between the Beast telling his story and the X-Men breaking in. The X-Men eventually break in and start this big ruckus uh, and alarms go off. It cuts back to the Master Mold <laughs> standing over Beast saying, And then you won a scholarship to college. Now, continue your biography. And Trask replies, But wait, what about the alarms that just went off? And the Master Mold is like... He's just way too into Beast's story. He's like, no, no, it's fine. It's fine. Keep going. What happened next? Like, <laughs> Beast, Beast prose is just far too riveting to, uh, yeah. to be interrupted by whatever's happening in the rest of the facility. I don't know. He's just there for some some really good story. The uh, the rest of this isn't particularly interesting. The, the rest of the X-Men, they come in. They get captured through fighting some Sentinels. There's some, some battle. And they all get captured. Uh, there's this thing where Professor X sends his astral form in to attack the master mold and is repelled by electrical bolts, which it's like, yeah. 
a robot is sending electricity to fight an astral projection of Professor X, which also, it says that, like, Professor X can affect the mind of robots, which is a thing. There's some weird Professor X stuff here. So initially when the Sentinels appear, he's like, mechanical minds, I can't do anything, which is kind of the, the central like struggle he has with sentinels but then he uses first he uses pure mental energy to knock a bunch of them over and then like you're saying he goes into his astral form but is thwarted by electricity which i don't feel like yeah (laughs) it's 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 all nonsense um yeah yeah, that that also brings up the point of i thought professor x's powers are purely that he can like go into other people's minds right they're they're not like gene gray where she gets to pick up objects and toss stuff around mm-hmm. like his are just purely interpersonal but here like he trips somebody at some point i can't remember he like gives someone a shove to, <laughs> to get them out of danger but that that's not a thing right like that that gets changed like he basically is purely okay all right well D- dave is sh- dave is shrugging right now <laughs> i mean he's kind of got the force here for all <laughs> for all intents and purposes i mean this yeah, is just yeah, an yeah. early power set development thing i think like you know they're trying to make him useful um, and again, like they don't really have Jean Grey as an active participant in the battle at this point, so he's he becomes like the uh, yeah, the telekinetic yeah. by default. Uh, and so this one ends with Xavier is his astral form is crawling back to his body, <laughs> and the X Men are all like captured in this big weird glass bubble thing. Yeah, so that the story's gonna wrap up in UXM. Uh, number 16 there's a really good cover here of of the x-men taking on master mold um story here by lee kirby layouts jay gavin again on pencils you have dick Ayer's delineation and then Art some on letters what are you gonna say oh just good cover this issue like th- this is the third issue basically one long story and i was just bored <laughs> throughout this whole thing like i was done yeah. with them yeah. fighting i mean the big thing here is you get the introduction of the sentinels and you get yeah. master mold um, but as like needing a full three issues for it is, is probably kind of a stretch. Yeah. Um, there are a few highlights probably that I want to call out. Yeah, yeah. Professor X, basically he, you know, once he does get back to his body, mentally, uh, summons a vehicle to pick him up like as a hitchhiker and they then ride to the city to get the police. Um, Professor X then again, he's like, he's basically telepathically taking over people left and right here. Um, or at least influencing. Yeah. I, these men are just like, oh, it's as if we knew he was here somehow, even though we couldn't see him from the road. Why do I want to help this man so much? Yeah, like- <laughs> right. Exactly. Um, so, yeah, he's got no bones about that. Uh, he They get the police to fly over this crystal sentinel base. And um, and Professor X convinces them to, uh, I don't remember exactly how, but they interfere with a sentinel transmission. Okay, okay. So Professor X, let, let, I'll, I'll do this real quick. Professor X goes back to the sentinel that collapsed on stage and realizes that the reason it died and collapsed was because there's, like, a big crystal, I think, in a yeah, clock yeah. tower outside, and that crystals interfere with robots or something, which I found very offensive, because crystals, as you know, Dave, uh, they harness healing energy from the quantum field, and they send it to your body's energy field to mm-hmm. iron out any kind of uh, misalignments in our body's energy fields, Um Welcome to Crystal Pod. Uh, we're gonna, <laughs> this is my, my backdoor. Uh, this is the podcast within a podcast where I talk about the healing power of crystals. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, yeah. So, I mean, basically, it's just like, oh, crystals, they 
hurt robots from a distance. Yeah, and yep. right, he just he gets he gets the police to just drag a giant crystal in a helicopter over the base. <laughs> which That's is right, yeah. Absurd. Uh and it just shuts things down. Bolivar Trask, meanwhile, has been reluctantly helping. He he's kind of come around since he heard Beast's story. He well, decided it's- that it's interesting. He's he's coming around in that he doesn't want Master Mold to take over humanity, yeah. but he's not like pro mutant here. He's not like I've seen the error of my ways. Well, no, he he does say like when he hears Beast's story, he actually says something like, "Oh, you know, I was wrong. They're not all evil." Because he hears that Beast is here for like selfless purposes. Yeah, I guess that's a big win. It's nonetheless like I don't mm-hmm. I don't know I don't necessarily get the sense that he's feeling like reformed yeah yeah yeah. like totally reformed total remorse i mean again like there's a big difference between being like they're not all evil and some of them should be wiped out right (laughs) yeah like that's still a problem um nonetheless you know he's basically forced by master mold to build send alarmy but rather than do this all the way through to conclusion he sacrifices himself for humanity um you know and i wrote here not for mutants but maybe maybe there's a hint of (laughs) okay they're not all evil um, but really, I think it's just like he doesn't want humanity taken over. So him and Master Mold, they are sort of captured in this explosion. There's a great Stan Lee caption over their bodies at the end of this, over Bolivar Trask and Master Mold's bodies that says, Beware the fanatic. Too often his cure is deadlier by far than the evil he denounces. Which I feel like is a really nice um, sort of prophetic Stan Lee line about yeah, you know, yeah. the dangers of, of this sort of demagoguery. Yeah, yeah, for sure. <laughs> I mean, any kind of authoritarianism, that's a yeah. really, that's a good point. Yeah, I was surprised Bolivar Trask dies here, as I thought he was a bigger character, but maybe I'm going to be proven wrong in the future, but uh, I don't know at this point. I mean, nobody ever comes back. Oh, yeah, that's, that's true. So, <laughs> we'll have to dead, see. Dead's dead in the yeah. Marvel world. So that's going to drive us straight into a couple more Fantastic Four issues. Uh, and again, like we are in the reading all of 44 <laughs> through 53 range of the My Marvelous Year Club. We're going to stop it. We're going to read 44 and 45 here in 65 and then save the rest for the 1966 list. When I when I got to this, I was just like, man, Dave, you really, really loaded the Fantastic Four this year. But now I see why. Because they're important, man. There's so much that happens. These are important. Yeah. And these are good, too. So Reed and Sue are married now, and at the Baxter building, uh, Johnny Storm is living there, and he's just, like, so frustrated. He's so frustrated with all the domestic bliss happening around him. Like, he's really sick of yeah. uh, the two of them just being lovebirds around him. So he gets in his his Viper, he says, his, his sports car out front to go for a ride and get some air. The ground starts shaking around him, and he's like, an earthquake in New York City. I also thought it's just funny because it's just like... 44 issues in, you know it's probably not an earthquake, right? Like, you've fought so yeah. many <laughs> enormous threats, but for an earthquake to be the first thing his mind goes to. Yeah. He starts, he just takes off. He's like, all right, well, I'm, I'm out of here. <laughs> I don't want to stick around for an earthquake. And uh, while he drives off, Medusa from the Frightful Four pops out of the back seat and says that she's being chased by someone named Gorgon. And she needs a ride out of town. And she holds a gun to his head that <laughs> she describes as a vacuum gun. Which, if she fires it, will suck the oxygen away so he can't flame on. There are a couple of details before you keep going with that saga oh, I yeah, do please. want to call out. Uh, the first is that on the cover of this issue, they have all the nicknames for the Fantastic Four. Oh, I didn't notice that. So it's Reed is, you know, Stretcho, um, Big Ben Grimm, um, 
I don't remember what they call him as his nickname, but whatever it is, it makes sense. And for Sue, they say Sweetums is her nickname. Yeah. Nobody calls Sue Sweetums. <laughs> Absolutely nobody. It's never been used in an issue. It's Reed's private name for her. <laughs> sure, fine. But it, it reminds me of, do you remember, I don't know if you listened to Drake, but there's a line he has where he says he was wearing so many chains, people are calling him Chaining Tatum. And I always think <laughs> no one has ever called you Channing Tatum, Drake. I'm sorry. It's just not a thing. And that's what Sweetums reminded me of. Isn't Sweetums that uh, that big lumbering Muppet from the Muppets? The, like, the one that's like six feet tall? The giant one? No, I, if yeah. it is, I didn't know that. That'd be awesome. Yeah, I'm pretty sure that guy's name is Sweetums. Because I, I saw, uh, oh, the Marvelists podcast was just uh, talking to... Sweetums? <laughs> they're talking to like <laughs> Roy Thomas, amazing. I think, actually, and uh, discussing Peter Dinklage's character and mm. <laughs> comparing him to Sweetums. <laughs> okay, that's pretty good. Yeah. So Medusa's got Johnny at, at vacuum gunpoint. Yes, yeah, thank you. In a vehicle. Yeah. She's being traced by Gorgon. They they drive off into the woods. Meanwhile, back at the Baxter building, they just hear this like big rumbling and the building starts to shake. And I like this shot. Ben Grimm looks out the window and he just sees someone climbing the side of the Baxter building. But it's someone who's just climbing by like kicking their feet into the brickwork of the side of the building. Who's strong enough their feet just penetrate and he's climbing it like a ladder, like making his own ladder step by step. But you don't see who it is. You just see the feet like punching holes in the wall. Yeah, it kind of gets the juggernaut treatment for about half an issue here. Of yeah, the slow build reveal. Yeah, which the reveal doesn't pay the pay off the same way. Not as but no. He uh, whoever this is climbs to the top of the building and steals the Fantastic Four's helicopter. Back in the woods, Medusa's like kind of explaining that she's running from this character named Gorgon, and Johnny tries to take a swing at her and like she shoots the vacuum gun at him, which sucks all the oxygen out of his lungs. I don't know from around him. He uh, he goes unconscious. Incidentally. The woods that they parked in are right next to, what is it, State University? Is that Reed Richards' alma mater? Yeah, because they, they mentioned that they're familiar with them, so they haven't gone too far. They're nearby, and Dragon Man pops out of the woods here. Dragon Man uh, is, oh boy, he's a real cutie. Uh, <laughs> he's, basically, there was an issue where the Fantastic Four went to go visit Reed Richards' old college because he was giving a speech, and somebody had sculpted this giant dragon, um, and through a bunch of various stuff, he got brought to life. And uh, he's kind of just like a, a baby, <laughs> kind of. He's just like a baby in a giant's body. So he really likes Sue Storm. That was the big takeaway from the last issue. And when he sees Medusa, her like female hair reminds him. <laughs> completely different look, completely different hairstyle, but they like really make a point of just saying like, that soft female hair reminds Dragon Man of Sue Storm, and uh, he's immediately kind of wooed by her. Gorgon shows up and starts fighting, and he looks like he's got goat legs, um, though that's not immediately clear, but he kind of has goat hooves, you can kind of see. Um, he doesn't have normal feet, and he's just kind of this big, burly, hairy guy, and he starts kicking rocks to pieces <laughs> and causing a ruckus. Dragon Man picks up Medusa, flies off, and... Gorgon in his helicopter and Johnny Storm start following behind. Basically, this leads to basically everyone gathers now on a rooftop where uh, Gorgon is hunting Medusa. And he explains to the Fantastic Four and, and Dragon Man as well, <laughs> for what it's worth, that he has come to return Medusa to her people. 
So it's kind of the first like sense of Medusa belongs somewhere else. Medusa doesn't want to go for whatever reason. Yeah. And it ends with um, Dragon Man flies off with Sue this time, the, the only female to show him kindness. Yeah. Uh, and Gorgon, you know, he's displaying all of his powers and he's taking down buildings with stomps. And then this issue ends with him foot stomping the very building that they're on. Yeah. So everyone is falling to their apparent demise. Yeah. Yeah, and yeah, Gorgon basically just has like great kick power. Pretty much. Yeah, it's not really explained, which is kind of fun. Like they just kind of show if you weren't paying too close attention too close attention, you'd think he was just like super strong, but it's all in his kicks. Yeah. Right. And that goes straight into issue forty five, which is Among Us Hide the Inhumans, Stan Lee, Jack Kirby, Joe Sinette, and Artie Simek on creative credits. So the team escapes the fall, of course. From the building, uh, Johnny immediately flies off after Dragon Man, who has his sister. Page five, there's a really cool uh, Roosh lettering on Dragon Man's blast that I wanted to call out. Huh. If you're reading along and you go to this panel, like the lettering is, it's like part of the flame, which we haven't seen a ton of like sound effect art being integrated um, in these early years. You know, sound effects are just kind of in the background, but this one's yeah. like curving around his mouth. It's a, I, I like it. It's a nice little design. I, yeah, I I don't think I particularly noticed, but that is fun to like see that integrated. I like you just yeah. said if you're reading along, like that just gave me the idea that there's a sp- a very specific type of audience member for this who uh, who pulls up the list, pulls up the comics, hits play on the podcast, and just tries to start like flipping through the pages literally <laughs> as we discuss them, <laughs> like a fundamental misunderstanding of how this works. That sounds not recommended. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> So uh, to free Sue from Dragon Man's grasp, Johnny goes Nova, which we've talked about as his like ultimate superpower, yep. kind of exhausting. His limit break. But he goes yeah. basically as hot and as bright as he can, and uh, and this frees Sue. So we get kind of an incongruous cutaway. It doesn't free Sue. I don't think it actually works really well. They just come back. <laughs> Dragon Man is like a little upset, and Sue is just like, no, no, it's fine. And then Dragon oh, Man yeah. just brings her back. Like that <laughs> whole right. suspense of like Dragon Man flying off with her. Johnny, if Johnny didn't show up, she still would have just come back a couple minutes later because she just calmed him down. Because he, he basically is just... Because Dragon Man's like fairly friendly. Yeah. yeah. Oh, he's friendly. He's just kind of a toddler who like gets overwhelmed and lashes out. Oh, God. He's... I love Dragon Man. Yeah, that's a good point. Dragon Man actually will continue to get better and better. Um, oh, cool. Okay, because I'm a big Dragon Man fan already. Yeah, he gets, uh, he gets pretty awesome actually <laughs> more recently. But... Uh, so we get this incongruous cutaway to Sandman and the Trapster in prison. Oh, yeah. And what? I call this out only because it's a page that, like, does not really make sense in the context of the issue nope. and does not really pay off. I, I thought that. I was like, hmm, I wonder where this is going. And then it never came up again. It's just, like, Medusa is part of the Frightful Four. She disappeared in the last issue. She was taken by Gorgon. Where's the rest of the Frightful Four? In prison. That's it. It's a real weird use of a page. In the story, I thought. It's a funny moment, though. I like that uh, Sandman's like, I can escape from here. He punches the glass out on his cell door that is electrifies him and gives him a giant zap backwards. <laughs> and when he goes flying back, uh, I think someone else in the cell is like, another slide, of, another pane of glass already slid into place. <laughs> like, <laughs> it just felt very video gaming to me. Like, you can punch yeah. this glass all you want, but there's just an infinite amount of panes of glass that will keep replacing it <laughs> yeah fairly advanced present technology um so again the team regroups johnny uh you know basically like regroups and has a moment to pause and, and kind of talk about what happened johnny decides he wants to go on a date 
which is what he originally planned to be doing during this time. He calls Dory Evans, and she has already found someone else for a date, so he just sort of goes wandering out and about the town alone. And who should he see but a beautiful girl who immediately captivates him and and disappears? It's just a girl sitting on the, like, she's sitting, he's in, like, a rough part of town, and she's just sitting on some stoop or something, and he starts like, oh, hey there, sweetums, and... She starts running, and the wind picks up and obscures his vision, and she's gone when the uh, the wind dies down again. And then, like, later, he goes out again for another walk, and he finds her again, and he's like, oh, it's that woman again. Wait, come back. And she's just running like, no, leave me alone. Like, <laughs> stop chasing me. And he's just chasing this, <laughs> chasing a strange woman at night through back alleys yelling, a gal with your looks ought to be seen by everyone. It's... <laughs> <laughs> Not the best look, Johnny. No, yeah, that's oh, that's literally what I just wrote. I, I wrote not a good look, Johnny. <laughs> <laughs> they do. That's funny. They do eventually meet up, and uh, Johnny introduces himself to Crystal, as we learn her name is, and Lockjaw, uh, her big pet dog with antenna on his forehead. And basically, Crystal is impressed that Johnny has powers. She says, oh, you're like us. And we see Crystal kind of using these elemental powers of hers um, in very limited ways here. Oh, and Crystal invites Johnny home to meet the family, which uh, Lockjaw transports them to. Uh, Lockjaw is a basically a teleportation dog. Oh, my God. Okay, let's let's not like let's let's park a second on Lockjaw because these issues first I get Dragon Man. And then Lockjaw, and Lockjaw is like probably MVP of all, all of Marvel Comics at this point. He's got the biggest muscles. He's got the biggest heart. He can't lose. I, <laughs> I am, I am in love with Lockjaw. I know there's a, yeah. uh, a Lockjaw solo series by, uh, is it uh, Daniel Kibblesmith mm-hmm. that just came out in the last year that I kind of wanna, I wanna check out. It's pretty fun. Yeah, I, I heard and. Uh, Man, I love Lockjaw. He's just this enormous bulldog with antennae and a million muscles, and he's so cute. Yeah, Lockjaw's pretty awesome. Uh, cut back to the Baxter building where you have Dragon Man and Ben uh, fighting for, like, no good reason. Um, ben just pushes him and is like, get out of my way, Dragon. And the Dragon yeah. Man is, like, panics and starts crying and <laughs> flailing around, and they just get into a fight, yeah. Yeah, I mean, the fault is, like, all on Ben's. The reason Dragon Man's there is Reed wants to experiment on him and learn his, <laughs> of course. You know, understand his structure. So they've got him there as, like, this kind of, I don't know, like, captive experiment, really. There's a good moment where the thing actually, like, after the things kind of calm down and Sue explains that, like, oh, he's, you know, he's he's just a, a child. He's actually quite, he's he's very kind. He's just, like, he's scared. The thing actually has a moment where he sympathizes with him. He's like, well, I understand what it's like to be stuck in a, you know, a big, ugly body, basically. Yeah. And he, and it's funny, like, Sue's like, oh, what's that, Ben? And he's like, oh, nothing. Don't worry about it. There, there is a kind of nice moment of recognition of, of someone who's like him in a way. Yeah. Uh, I do also want to call out during the sequence that we get uh, a, a classic Reed Draper quote uh, where he <laughs> says to Sue, stop sounding like a wife and find me that gun, lady, which I'm not even going to give you context for. That's just, that's Reed being Reed. I love that we write down the same lines. Like I, I was just thinking that. Like, I wonder if uh, <laughs> I wonder if Dave wrote down the same sexist line that I did. Yep. Also, I that is like I mean it's a classic like sexist Reed Richards line, but it's a good one. It's pretty funny. Yeah. So we now cut back to the Inhumans base where Crystal's introducing Johnny to the family. He meets Karnak, 
Gorgon, Medusa, and Triton. Uh, since we have not talked about two of these today, to Karnak, we learn he can see the flaw in all things. He's got this big sort of oval-shaped head, a green and white costume. And again, he's like a master fighter who, you know, if he sees a brick wall, he can chop it at the exact point that will bring it down. Triton, we don't get a lot of intro at this point. Um, it'll it'll come as he sort of starts fighting Johnny, um, but basically he's like a sea creature. He's like a green um, merman kind of looking guy. Yeah, there's nothing and he's all hooded and cloaked when we initially meet him, kind of hidden. Uh, so the Inhumans uh, basically pretty quickly attack Johnny when realizing he's not actually an Inhuman. Uh, they kind of, you know, tell Crystal you shouldn't have brought him here. Johnny puts up a flare for the team. Everyone gathers outside of this Inhumans hideout. And uh, as the fourth is gathered and prepared to fight, we get the final reveal of Black Bolt. Ooh, so cool. the issue ends. So yeah. cool. That design of Black Bolt is, like, pretty nice. Uh, I love Black Bolt's costume. And and they do a good job building him up. That name is pretty cool. They keep talking about, like, there's one of them that's not accounted for, Black Bolt. And then when he finally shows up, it's pretty sick. Yeah, it's a good payoff. The Inhumans are, are a really weird concept. They're just... I, we'll get, like, a lot more backstory and get them fleshed out soon. They basically read as mutants, right? It's just a bunch of people who are mostly humanoid who have a huge array of powers without any like consistency between them and it's just it's an interesting choice to introduce them now when you just had mutants like i feel like they could have just fleshed out mutants more they could have very easily made this an older hidden mutant civilization which is not what they chose to do Mm -hmm. um but that actually would have made a lot of sense yeah the tapestry of the marvel universe the first time i read this i think i was like a little confused because it does seem i don't know it does seem odd but they have all become such good characters in such like an interesting uh, fleshed out world that in retrospect now, like I really like them maybe a little bit more because I know how cool they become. I think the Inhumans work quite well in the context of Fantastic Four comics, yeah. especially initially. Like I think they're a good sort of like super group on the side yeah. that the Fantastic Four interacts with. And I, I do like those dynamics. Um, we'll get a little bit more into their team as we get to the next issues. But I, I think... Their introductions here, like, it's still pretty mysterious. We don't really have a good grasp on where they come from, what their deal is, like, what are they. They could be mutants at this point, and we wouldn't. That's true. So, uh, next up, we read Three Strange Tales. We're going to... These are the same Strange Tale issues that we read for the Doctor Strange stories we talked about last episode. But we're just going to talk about three of them here. 134, 135, 136. Uh, First up, in 134, this is... Written by Stan Lee, with art by Bob Powell, and inking by Wally Wood, who we've been seeing on Daredevil. And I'm uh, not the biggest fan of this art. I thought it was a little, like, workmanlike, I guess. Yeah. 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 Um, not the biggest fan of this story, either. <laughs> so, Johnny, Johnny Storm and The Thing are working on their car, or Johnny's car, and the Watcher shows up to interfere again. <laughs> shows up with a challenge. I'm gonna, I'm gonna say with reason this time. He's at least got like some rationale. I get, I guess you know, like I understand that there's, there's good reasons for his fight or for him interfering. But he just keeps saying like, I must not interfere. I'm only here to watch, except past a certain point when I feel like the danger is big enough, and then I really need to interfere because he, he interferes way more than he watches. They don't talk about him when he's just watching. They only bring him up when he pipes in to say like. Hey, I gotta warn you of something. I saw it. I've been watching. Like, anyway, he talks about. <laughs> yeah, they they actually ask him like, 
you're not supposed to really interfere. You're supposed to watch. And he gives them a real cute shrug. <laughs> There's a very funny panel of him looking kind of sheepish and shrugging that I like. He's here to warn them that Kang the Conqueror is back in, like, King Arthur's, back trying to take over King Arthur's court. And we get this flashback of Kang the Conqueror bursting in on Merlin the Wizard. And he thinks that if he takes over King Arthur's court, all of history will be rewritten, including that the Fantastic Four will never be born. Which, I guess, I mean, I don't know why he needed to, there's a million easier ways to do this. <laughs> you know, find out their great-great-great-great-grandparents and just go kill them. Or do, do anything else. Like, <laughs> like I, I don't know. It, it's, it's, but it's would quite... those, but would that involve knights and swords in this comic? Because I'm pretty sure no. In a wizard battle? Right, yeah, yeah. Also, this is something, this is me being real, like, you know, nitpicky. But he, he shows up to Merlin and starts talking about how he's from the 25th century. No, the yeah, Tomorrow right. Man is from the 25th century. Kang the Conqueror is from the 30th century or the 40th. No, Ramatut is from the 30th century, then becomes Kang the Conqueror, who is in the 40th century. And it's all over the place. And Yeah, that one, that one seemed notably wrong to me as well. Um, I mean, really, really the reason that I did include this issue was... Strange Tales, again, like these A stories when they're torch focused and they become kind of two in one thing in Johnny stories. Yeah. Um, they're they're generally pretty passable. Like you said, they're generally pretty workmanlike. This one, I mean, it's got the Watcher and King the Conqueror. Like these are big Marvel tentpoles that typically would be in, you know, titles like Avengers or Fantastic Four. So I think it's going to be interesting to people for those reasons. But I mean, otherwise, it's yeah, it's been in Johnny stopping King uh, as, you know, a kid in King Arthur's court. And like, it's pretty, it's pretty basic as yeah. comics go uh, from there. There's nothing like too, too crazy exciting. I honestly, like I didn't even really write down any um, panels except <laughs> for Ben launching uh, Johnny in a catapult at yeah. a horde of attacking knights, which was pretty fun. Actually, there's a funny panel of, uh, of Ben picking up a horse and a knight. And he's grabbing, he's holding the horse like a football in one hand with a knight on its back, like about to throw it. And then the next panel just shows the horse in the distance running. And it's like really disappointing that we didn't actually get to see him wing that horse. <laughs> <laughs> so Strange Tales number 135 is where the A story transitions. We are officially done with the Human Torch era of solo titles, which is kind of an interesting turning point for Marvel. They have uh, transitioned now, I think, where like, pretty clear fantastic four i have more than enough going on as a unit where it doesn't super make sense for johnny and ben to have these solo adventures um also like you've got peter parker covering the teen quarter you know more or less and and now covering like college so what we get instead is nick fury agent of shield and uh this becomes a pretty interesting title in in marvel's canon you yeah. get stanley jack kirby dick ayers inking and art smack on letters uh it moves fury out of the world war ii Helen Commando's era and sort of into the 60s spy craze. We've seen Fury pop up in pages. Obviously, we talked about him as kind of a cameo in um, in FF Annual number three. But basically, this gets him like directly in the thick of the Marvel Universe. And again, like it really capitalizes on the Bond, uh, Man from Uncle sort of 60s spy craze. Get smart, maybe around this time too. Like this is this is Marvel seeing a trend and a genre. In a way that they really trying to think like everything superhero. I don't know that anything super genre until 
agent of shield, Nick Fury. Yeah, yeah, and I mean, it's it's really fun, and part of that is because it feels very distinct from everything else they're doing. Mm-hmm. A spy story full of spy gadgets and subterfuge and paranoia. It it feels very different. Yeah. So the issue uh, includes Nick Fury's introduction to Shield and Hydra, which I thought was kind of interesting. You know, people wonder how how did Nick Fury get involved with these organizations. This is the issue that details that. Uh, we get a nice view. We get a lot of nice views in these issues of like Hydra home base, which yeah. I always find like hilarious. So it's introduction with like everyone in there is doing like all these gladiator challenges. You know, <laughs> yeah, like you've got guys up on like. Um, like literally like American Gladiator, the TV show. On balance beams with the big Q-tips. Yeah, yeah, totally. Like they're fighting each other and practicing or whatever. They must spend hours on synchronized hand training because they all like are able to put their arms in the exact pose of, you know, okay, I got mine fully vertical. Okay, you go 90 degrees. Okay, you're going to be 120 degrees. And they all are able to do these cool poses when the leader shows up. It, it's ridiculous and it's it's very dumb. You're right. But like that shot, the first time they show uh, their first female Hydra member gets initiated in this issue and they do that cool pose where they all yell Hail Hydra and look like they have a million arms. That's yeah. a that's a cool shot. Like, yeah, I like that one a lot. No, it's it's good. And it, it, you know, it characterizes them as distinct. So Nick Fury, meanwhile, he's being brought in uh, and basically he's being evaluated for the head of shields um, for the head of shield. And he meets Tony Stark there. As uh, Tony Stark tells him he's the head of S.H.I.E.L.D.'s special weaponry division, yep. which is kind of interesting because we haven't really seen Tony or Iron Man um, connected to S.H.I.E.L.D. You know, until this issue. So you learn that he and the MCU has kind of um, twisted this where it was his father, Howard Stark, right. who's yeah. kind of involved with the origins of S.H.I.E.L.D. Um, but in the Marvel 60s, Silver Age, it's actually Tony Stark is one of the earliest like S.H.I.E.L.D. members. So Fury is taken... Uh, to a helicarrier, which he finds out when there's a bomb on board, and he dives on it quick. He takes action. He throws the bomb out the window, and he then realizes that they are miles and miles in the sky in this really cool splash. Oh page yeah, I was going to bring the that first up. helicarrier we see, um, which is this flying huge base. I mean, what would you call it? It's like a airplane meets. It's like an aircraft carrier in the sky. Yeah, yeah, totally. That that page though has like. Way too many, like, it's like a commercial airliner flying within, like, <laughs> a tenth of a mile of it. Like, yeah. there's, like, four airplanes all, like, at cross purposes right right, right within, you know, a one square mile <laughs> area. Those poor air traffic controllers on the ground, yeah. like, monitoring that situation. Good grief. Yeah. Um, basically, the issue ends with everyone sees Fury taking action. He's making orders and all this. And it ends with him being offered the role of a leader of S.H.I.E.L.D., now kind of having seen... And learned a little bit about what Hydra's trying to do, which is, of course, uh, destroy them and attack them. Yeah, so Hydra, like, Hydra doesn't get characterized too much in their motivations, like their uh, their company's mission statement. They're just kind of an evil organization of faceless people. There's this really interesting thing where they talk about each agent, if they fail their task, they'll get killed and replaced by another agent. And they get the chance to fight their replacement. Mm-hmm. Once you fail, you just need to fight one-on-one with the person who is going to step up. And if you defeat them, you get to stay. And if not, then you're replaced. So it's just a bunch of faceless, expendable people, which, especially in the next issue, they do this really good job of making, like, adding this layer of paranoia where, like, Mm -hmm. Hydra could be anywhere and it could be anyone. Just really surprising that they they kind of, they get that right at the beginning. Because, I, I mean, that's a thing forever, right? Like, who's a Hydra agent? Who's not? Yeah, yeah, it's pretty cool. I think it's what made Winter Soldier 
in the MCU is so compelling to so many people. Right, yeah. Is the idea that like, oh, is he a hydration? Oh, that person could turn? You know, so it's like you kind of get that um, just with random passerbys on the street. And yeah, yeah. that takes us straight into Strange Tales number 136, the last issue we're going to talk about, which does a great job with that. Yeah, written by Stan Lee, layouts by Kirby, and art by Johnny Severin, who is returning to Marvel after uh, working in the Golden Age. And uh, he's... Uh, I think he's on this for a while. He switches to the Incredible Hulk when that launches as its own solo title pretty soon. And then I know he's famous for working with Dick Ayers on a like a popular run of Sergeant Fury and the Howling Commandos, I think starting up in a year or two. So hmm. I really liked his art here a lot. It's a lot more detailed. It kind of looks like the kind of older pulpy stuff that we've seen before, but um, really great color work and some details. Uh, and this is basically Nick Fury's being tailed by a bunch of Hydra members um, they're they're following him on the street, and he just he uses a bunch of gadgets and subterfuge to in, involving a a secret barbershop. Um, he walks into a barbershop that is actually the the secret entrance to a shield base. He hands his his hat to the uh, the hat check guy. Inside is a note that just says, "The next two customers to come in are Hydra agents. Act normal." Which is a fun idea. Like, how many notes does Nick Fury walk around with in his hat? <laughs> because <laughs> he, he had yeah you don't actually see him write that he had to have had that note prepared beforehand otherwise he just stopped on the street wrote a note while hydro was watching and i do like um shield they'll make use of the barbershop uh you know for the next few issues but i like the idea of these sort of secret bases that only they know about and they've got these little you know kind of like mission impossible style it, things they say to each other that only they would know when he walks in the barbershop he says he'll have the works and that's that's code for troubles afoot yeah, and it just gives this really fun idea immediately of, like, spy versus spy, S.H.I.E.L.D. versus mm-hmm. HYDRA. They're both, like, these organizations with a lot of a lot of manpower and a lot of technology, and they're at cross-purposes, and yeah, it's fun. The, the rest of this issue is they basically, the two assassins that are following Nick Fury come into the barbershop, they get captured. Nick Fury hypnotizes them with a, a new gadget from Division Q, I think, or is that Q from James Bond? I can't remember. Um, he, he hypnotizes them both basically to like, to believe that they shot Nick Fury and discovered where the secret shield base was, which is a warehouse down the street. So these two assassins leave and convince the rest of Hydra that they killed all these shield agents and that they know where the warehouse is. And then Hydra mounts this full on assault, like 50 dudes. (laughs) Well, I don't know they're dudes. I shouldn't say dudes because they have masks and we have established there's female Hydra members, like 50 Hydra members. show up to this warehouse and burst in and like cut through the metal on the outside but it's a trap and walls go up and the room fills with like adhesive basically to glue all the hydra members down and they capture a ton of hydra members i mean that's basically it but it's really fun like i really enjoyed this, this and it just feels very distinct from what else we're seeing and i think that this being integrated into the Marvel world is a, a smart choice. Yeah, one one small thing just to call out at the end here is I, I realized as we were reading this, um, Strange Tales, I think 135 in particular, is one of the few instances in Marvel Comics where you get both Jack Kirby and Steve Ditko uh, in the same book. Oh, so you yeah. Because you have Kirby doing Fury and then Ditko doing uh, Strange Tales in the B story. But anyway, if you're enjoying these stories, I would say, you know, we just did Strange Tales, the, the Strange Stories through issue 141. Uh, I would recommend continuing to read the, I would read the A stories there as well um, with Nick Fury, because that's like a five-part saga that all goes together. Cool. That's going to do it for us for uh, wrap up 1965. I think 1965 is great. Like, yeah. this is 
this is when it's starting to like really get fun for me and more than like, I mean, there's been some good stuff and there's Spider-Man's been fun. Fantastic four has been fun, but like there's always that little, little tinge of like campiness that that's over a lot of this. And, and there's still some of that here, but I'm starting to just like legitimately enjoy a lot of these comics. Um, like actually find myself getting lost in them and like not kind of checking the page count. Like, all right, I've, I've seen enough of this fight. When's this going to, going to get going? Like, um, yeah, yeah, I'm really liking this. Totally. So thanks for everyone for listening. Again, you can find all of the My Marvelous Year reading lists at MyMarvelousYear.com. Uh, you can back us on Patreon for some cool exclusives like access to the Slack channel, voting in the poll. Again, Zach posts all the lists there every week. Uh, you can go to Patreon.com slash MyMarvelousYear for more on that. This is also where... Um, we will be looking for listener feedback as well as you can email us my marvelous here at gmail.com feedback for 1965 uh, is going to be incorporated into our variant cover episode please get us that feedback by march 12th that's also which is if you're listening to this on day of release that's tomorrow so uh you have till end of day tomorrow to uh to send us that and same goes for poll voting we will be closing the poll uh, basically midnight on March 12th. And just a reminder of the poll, this, for 1965, we're talking about the best tropes uh, that Stanley Lee, that Stanley Lee, Stanley Lee, <laughs> Stanley Lee, uh, that Stanley incorporated into his work. Yeah. You can find more My Marvelous Year content at uh, Instagram, Twitter, of course. And again, I would promote the Slack channel. There's some really great conversation going on with some excellent comic book fans. Again, that is at the $5 tier. On our Patreon account, you get access to that. For more of my work, uh, you can go to compocarol.com. You can check out all of my writing. Uh, I would say, please, uh, if you like the show, subscribe, rate, and review on iTunes. We'll be back uh, with 1966 in a couple weeks. Again, the next week's episode will be our listener response to 1965 as we talk about what people are thinking about the year. Yeah, please. Please send that in because those are really fun to read and they're great launching points for us to kind of wrap up our general thoughts about the year and the direction that Marvel Comics is going. Yeah. Uh, final note here, uh, Disaster Piece wrote the music for the show. Thank you, Disaster Piece, for the excellent credits. If you like their music, you can go to Disaster Piece. That's P-E-A-C-E. Uh, you can find them on Bandcamp and listen to their excellent tunes. Also on Spotify, that's where I've been listening to a lot of them. Yeah, cool. All right, everybody. Thanks for listening, and we will see you next year. See you next year. See you next year.